Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. But you also had people that were very fine people. Very fine people on both sides. And the, and the aliens would mind meld and give them the technology. They're bad aliens. So the, uh, Are you surprised the Nazis were influenced by demons? No, if demons are real, I would definitely think they'd be on the side of the Nazis. Yeah. McDonald's is connected to the Clintons. They chop up the bodies and put them into the sausage and hamburgers. People are being cannibalized. Look it up. And I'm watching CNN talk about this as violent white nationalist protests. We have done everything in our power to keep this peaceful, you know? It's uh, Pepe's become kind of a symbol. Welcome to Yeah Na Pasaran, a show about fascism and its gravediggers. I'm Cam Smith. I'm Andy Fleming. And this week we are joined by Dr. Ray Hereza, who is an anthropologist studying race and digital media. Thanks for joining us, Ray. Hi, thanks for having me. I guess just to begin with, a recent report that you were the senior researcher has just released another section, the SPLC in Peril report on US youth attitudes on guns. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about what you found when you went out looking to see what the the youth thought about shooting him up. Yeah, I mean, okay, so first I should clarify my role in the project. So I wasn't involved in the second part of the analysis on which the second part of the report was based on. I conducted the focus groups with youth from around the US and I did the initial analysis, but the second report findings, I I wasn't a part of writing up. So I can't exactly speak to those, but I can speak to my experience when it comes to interviewing youth. I mean, in a lot of ways, it wasn't surprising. Youth were, especially white youth who were boys, would talk about guns as kind of being a part of everyday life and a, a way to sort of bond with family members. People talked about how grandfathers and fathers had passed down guns to them or had always had guns around the house or were involved in hunting, that kind of stuff, or how they would shoot in in certain gun ranges. So it seemed like for some youth, at least, especially in areas that are more rural and kind of areas that they constructed as empty, right? It seemed like guns were sort of just a way of life. And I remember that's one of the ways I labeled that particular theme. Guns are just something that they grew up with, something that they keep using. So so there's that. And there's there's also this this was there was this really interesting pattern where youth would construct themselves and their family members as kind of good gun owners, right? So the people who used guns for hunting, knew how to store guns properly in a gun safe, etc. Those were constructed as quote unquote good gun owners. And then they constructed this figure of a of a bad gun owner who was almost almost always kind of like racialized and and classed, right? So they would talk about how cities were dangerous, urban areas were dangerous because they were 
like so dense and, and full of chaos and, and whatnot. And it's, it's always poorer areas that they would say were dangerous and areas where black and brown folks tend to live in the U.S. So it, it was, I, I think for me, not very surprising, but it was interesting to see them kind of try and distance themselves from this figure that they've constructed, this very racist classist sort of way of framing who is a bad gun owner and who is a quote unquote irresponsible gun owner, right? And who is using guns for the wrong purpose. And then for them, people, for them, their family members and they themselves who had grown up with with guns deeply in, embedded in, in daily life were quote unquote responsible gun owners who didn't go out shooting people or, or whatever. Um, mental health also came up as a as a, a theme. And when I was analyzing the data, I noticed that they would advance these very kind of like ableist ideas about how people with mental health struggles are more likely to be violent. And probably those shooters are, and by shooters, I mean, I'm referring to mass shootings in the US, right? Like they would say, oh, those people had mostly like young white boys, young white men, those people had like lost their minds or they had snapped or something. They just needed help. Right. So it was surprising, but also unsurprising, I would say. Right. One aspect of youth culture in the US is as well as having the sort of disturbing regularity of these mass shootings, young people are you know, constantly doing shooting drills at school. What sort of effect has the, the rise of the drill had on people's attitudes to guns? Is this the sort of thing where it makes them maybe less keen on them or what effect did it have? I'm not 100% sure I can speak to the broad effects of school drills on on how people think about guns. I suppose I can talk about how the youth I interviewed regarded it regarded these shooting drills. And essentially, it was a mixture of some youth were kind of like, it's a part of school, it's very boring, it's repetitive, right? I don't really see this as a threat, right? But some youth, understandably, and, and these youth would talk about the fact that they had heard about shootings, that older people in their lives had warned them about them, and stuff like that. Um, they would... Uh, talk about feeling anxious during these drills and feeling kind of nervous about the possibility that they might be in this in this situation, right? But and I'm not sure how that that directly affects their attitudes towards guns. But what I can say is that a lot of the youth I talked to kind of individualized the phenomenon of mass shootings. Right. So for them, they would talk about it as a, an issue that stems from aberrant individuals who had just lost their mind or irresponsible or depressed or anxious and needed help. And that's why they went and shot up uh, schools and churches, etc. But they didn't see that necessarily as something that was tied to guns as such, but rather something that is tied to the kind of person who would use a gun to shoot up a public space. Ray, was there any sense that, that you gleaned from the study that um, young people's attitudes towards guns and 
gun violence was informed by, say, the US military or military adventures overseas, or was that not really a factor or not didn't really loom large in terms of young people's understanding of violence and murderous violence generally? Yeah, I mean, so I would say that during the conversations, the focus groups with with youth, it didn't really come up as a theme. But I think that even though it didn't come up as a theme, we know that that's because we have largely failed in the U.S. to make the appropriate connections between settler colonial violence and U.S. imperialism and militarism abroad and how that kind of creates the market for guns in the U.S. and creates a surplus of guns in the U.S. And I'm thinking in particular of the work of Patrick Blanchfield here. And he talks about these links between like U.S. militarism, U.S. imperialism, settler colonial violence, guns, and, and the current kind of culture around guns in the U.S. So I think that it's not, it's, it's part of the fact that guns are seen as such an individual sort of problem. Rather, I, I guess I would venture to say that that's probably what it is, or at least part of it, seen as such an individual problem of character that like people or the youth I talked to weren't really thinking about it outside of these communities where these people who were aberrant lived in, right? But you didn't, I didn't really see much glorification of the military or anything like that in sort of conversations with these youth. Although I had only, I think like 40 something focus groups, right? And so I don't know if we had a sample that was bigger, that if, if that kind of thing would come up or depending on the kinds of youth we interviewed, where they lived, et cetera, if that would come up. But that's not really something that came up. But that's not to say that there isn't that connection, because there certainly is, I think. Ray, just switching gears, you've also written extensively on content moderation, particularly at Facebook and how it relates to various topics. Could you tell us a little bit about why you started looking at content moderation? I suppose I started looking at it in graduate school (laughs) during my PhD program. I picked it as a kind of dissertation topic, right? But I I guess the path to that is is really characterized by a long-abiding interest in making sense of power and power relations. And so I was I was always kind of interested in in uncovering and sort of analyzing the ways that racism and classism, et cetera, manifest in different spaces in society. I was initially interested during my PhD in doing a dissertation on content moderation in the Philippines. So I'm from the Philippines. I moved to the U.S. when I was 13. And one of the reasons I became a scholar, it was basically to understand the kind of like trauma of having to move to a different country, a country that is very much, the U.S. is very much responsible for like many of the problems in the Philippines and continues to be, right? But having to move to that country because of imperialism, right? And what that's done to the local economy and how it's shaped people's lives. So I had always been interested in in these questions of power and, and empire and whatnot. And when I was doing my PhD, content moderation kind of emerged as a as a place for me to examine this because initially I was drawn to it because of Sarah Roberts's work. And she had talked about 
content moderators in the Philippines who were hired or were outsourced, right, to moderate for Facebook and other social media companies, not just Facebook, essentially because they had quote unquote cultural competency in US culture and could speak English. And of course, now, I mean, Meta and other social media companies are looking for linguistic and cultural expertise elsewhere as well. But yeah, so it, it was kind of a way to study how imperialism manifests in the in the digital era. And I became interested in the digital mostly by accident. I a lot of the research that I was doing in graduate school, I was doing online because it was accessible. Like you could go on YouTube, you could go on whatever, Instagram, right? And or Twitter or now X and sort of take data from there and, and really analyze like how people are talking to each other, right? Like you don't have this barrier of the ex- the travel expenses or funding or anything like that. So it's easier to access how people are interacting with each other. And I just became kind of interested in digital spaces, in the narratives we kind of tell about digital spaces and digital technologies and what they do. And so that altogether, plus the interest in imperialism and power and contemporary capitalism all sort of came together to push me towards looking at content moderation. But at first I was interested in content moderation in the Philippines and then the pandemic happened. So I had to switch my focus to the U.S. because that's where I live. <laughs> and it's easier to talk to people remotely um, in the U.S. because the time differences are not so bad. Uh, so, yeah. Right. Could you tell us, for, for our listeners who might not be aware, could you maybe take us through a little bit about what being a content moderator at somewhere like Facebook involves? Yeah, right. So I want to say that I haven't really done this research I haven't talked to moderators recently in the past few months. And I just want to say that because things are always changing, right? But when I was talking to moderators in 2020 and 2021 and parts of 2022, it it was really tough to be a content moderator. And I was talking to third-party moderators in the U.S., right? So these are folks who are working for third-party vendors that... Facebook has essentially hired or, yeah, contracted to do content moderation work for them. So they were not considered full-time employees of Facebook. They were very much removed from interactions at headquarters in Silicon Valley, and they were paid very little. And a lot of the stories they told me were these kind of stories about seeing really terrible, violent graphic images and not being able to get them out of their heads and suffering from various forms of trauma, right? And receiving diagnoses in some cases. So it was this combination of really low pay, having to see terrible images and content all the time. And also importantly, and I think journalists emphasize this a lot too, when they cover content moderators stories, is there isn't like adequate uh, mental health support, right? So the moderators I talked to told me that they had these folks called wellness experts or coaches. And these wellness experts were not really helpful in helping them cope with their symptoms. And then finally, they were really feeling pressure from 
productivity metrics kind of like imposed on them, right? So they had different turnaround times, meaning like uh, the period of time where they could kind of like look at a ticket. So like a piece of content and decide and sort of make a decision if it should be removed, if it should be escalated, if it should stay up, right? They had a specific amount of time to do that task and they had to do a specific number of tickets, right? And it really varied by side two. So it was just overall a, a very stressful and awful situation, right? And this was all occurring in the midst of a global pandemic. And some of the interlocutors I had were telling me in September of 2020 that they were being asked to return to work, right, um, in person, because a lot of the content they were seeing, they were not actually allowed to work on outside of the workplace, right? They wouldn't let them review kind of the more graphic content outside of the confines of the physical workplace. So there was real pressure to get content moderators back in buildings physically again. So it was really, I don't know, really like a pressure cooker sort of situation, I think, that the folks I talked to were in. You're listening to Yena Pasaran on 3CR, 8.55am, 3cr.org.au and 3CR Digital on your DAB radio. Or, of course, you can listen on the Community Radio Plus app. We're currently talking to Dr. Ray Haraza about moderation. I'm Ray, do you, given the arduous and unrewarding nature of the work, that would seem to imply that workers, there'd be a, a large degree of burnout and churn among workers. Did you get any sense of how long someone could engage in that sort of work? What, what's the lifespan or the, the work span of someone engaged in this labour? I didn't really get a sense of an exact like time span, but my interlocutors would tell me that there was always a lot of turnover, right? So whether that's folks quitting because they were having such a hard time and it wasn't worth the pay or folk like having mental breakdowns um, at work essentially and having to take time off and having to leave. Right. Even though they, they needed to still work and still needed the money. So there wasn't like a, a time span that, yeah, I was made aware of, but it seemed to me that there was this sense that it was absolutely super easy to burn out and that burnout was happening quite frequently. Also, in this context, it seems to me that Facebook or Meta has been the subject of both a series of scandals in regards to this sort of work and public criticism. Do you get any sense that any of this actually has any effect upon how work is managed within Meta? Or is there any sense that there's any real degree of accountability? Well, I don't think so. And that's not to say that you know, people shouldn't keep trying to hold Meta accountable. But I think that the reason why it's not doing much is because people are seeing this, or at least folks in the mainstream are sort of seeing this as a, as a problem of, as a problem that's a problem that can be solved by technical fixes, by just sort of reforming content moderation itself. But the thing is that all technologies arise in a racial capitalist context, right? And I think that unless we start to really question and start to really dismantle that system, we're never going to have the type of 
tech, especially owned by corporations, that is is going to be just and is going to treat their workers well, right? Because if you're interested in keeping users online and keeping them engaged on your platform because of ads, right? And your ads revenue and to keep users online, you'd like to make sure that it's a quote unquote, you know, safe space for expression is something that is something that uh, folks always say, you're going to need a bunch of laborers to do that work to, to filter content, right? And the thing is, I don't think in, in a kind of like capitalist society that the priority is ever going to be the well-being of the workers. Like we've just not seen that in, I think, any industry unless workers really kind of like rise up and organize, right? Like, I don't think that this is something we can legislate away. I don't think that this is something that a few watchdog nonprofits can kind of push Meta to do. Meta is still, I mean, Facebook is still the the platform with the most users, I think, around the world, right? So it's not really, I don't really think it's affecting how moderators are being treated. And stories are coming out all the time about how moderators are being treated in different contexts, right? So in Kenya, moderators had sued Facebook. There are severe inequalities when it comes to pay across the global north and the global south, right? Different protections, different labor protections. So I don't really think that just because there are these controversies and that Facebook is in the spotlight that it's really going to, or meta, I suppose, that it's really going to push them to change the way they treat moderators unless we have kind of an organized labor force really pushing for change, right? Should Elon Musk perhaps be celebrated for the fact that he's not putting people through all of this drama? No, I mean... (laughs) (laughs) no i mean is he just like he's just convened they're planning to hire like a hundred or so in-house people right to to do this content moderation for twitter right or x i suppose i just saw that in the news i mean no i don't i don't think so i think that that's not really his intention i think that both approaches are wrong it's wrong to treat issues of hateful content right under which you have all sorts of isms subsumed under that category of of hateful content, right? Or hate speech as something you can just kind of filter away, filter out of platforms, right? Because again, it's part of the ways that technologies are constituted. Like we live in racist and capitalist societies that are very much shaping the priorities of people who are designing technologies, the way that people conduct business and such, right? But Musk's whole kind of approach was just like, let's just make it a free-for-all and get rid of content moderation entirely is also not a good approach. And he's not doing that because he feels bad for the workers. He's doing that because he he has his own whatever it is he's doing, right? Kind of reproducing like reactionary sort of ideas on on X, right? So yeah, I don't think so, for sure. <laughs> right. You heard it here first. Elon Musk, no friend of the worker. No, uh, Elon Musk <laughs> is not a friend of the worker. <laughs> Bray, could you speak a little bit about how the operations of social media platforms either obscure or illuminate the relationship between extreme and mainstream forms of racist and white supremacist discourse? 
So there's kind of a long answer. I guess I'll start with policy. And there's been a lot of research on this as well. There are a bunch of scholars who have looked at the policies of major social media platforms and look at what they imply about how racism works, essentially, what white supremacy, what white supremacy even is. And I think that the policies are, are sort of a product of the kind of milieu we're in, which is this still, I think, even though people increasingly keep saying that we had this racial reckoning during the 2020 BLM uprisings, I think still this post-racial fiction is, is still quite prevalent in the U.S. And I think under that rubric of post-racialism, the idea that we are past racial inequality, that the civil rights movement has led us to a place where everyone is now equal and any sort of discrimination is completely just aberrant to the norm of society, this this post-racial lens is really evident in the ways the policies are written in social media platforms, right? So they are targeting explicit, overt sort of forms of hate speech, of racist, misogynistic, transphobic, etc. content, but not necessarily looking at the ways that, of course not, right? <laughs> looking at the ways that social media companies might be perpetuating those things with the products they they create and also and 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 also just kind of exceptionalizing as some colleagues of mine have said the right right saying okay not th- the problem really are these sort of like people who are extreme who will post extreme things but there's no attention to the everyday forms of of oppression that go on in social media spaces So I think in that sense, the policies kind of obscure the way that racism, for example, is a mundane and white supremacy. It's a mundane everyday thing that kind of penetrates and saturates life in the in the United States and kind of reproduces the idea or the fiction of a post-racial society. So I think that that's one way that social media companies through their policies obscure um, the connection between the mainstream, so-called mainstream and so-called extreme, right? They kind of prop up this uh, category of the extreme and kind of reinforce the idea that the extreme is the problem when it comes to racism and that it's something we're mostly over as a society. So I think that's definitely one way. And then another way too, when it comes to content moderation is that the, these uh, policies, which have or stem from kind of like a post-racial perspective, are operationalized by content moderators who, again, are working under these terrible conditions in so many ways and don't have the agency to actually say like, hey, I think this actually might be a dog whistle or a form of racist speech, but it's not within the, it's not covered by the policy. Like if you look at the policy and you interpret it, it it wouldn't count as an example of hate speech according to Meta, for example, right? And in in doing so, they kind of make a moderator sort of complicit 
right, in in this post-racial project. Right. There's a lot of talk in terms of the internet about the affordances of the internet. But one of the things you also examine is the ways in which work discipline functions in a company like Meta. Can you talk a little bit more about work discipline and how that actually performs a particular role in sustaining these forms of um, racist and white supremacist discourse? Sure, yeah. So like I said, moderators operationalize the policies. Of course, the policies that moderators have, the copies of, of policies, are these much longer, much more complex documents than the community guidelines that Meta publishes, right? And they are coerced, I think, into operationalizing these policies and and in turn this kind of like post-racial understanding of white supremacy in, in the U.S. and I suppose around the world through, through these pro- productivity metrics that pressure them to moderate content or review content first accurately, right, according to the standards of uh, a quality analyst who is another kind of like worker who will then um, audit the pieces of content that a moderator has reviewed, right? Or a sample of them. And also, again, the turnaround times, right? They have to do this quickly. So they have to do this quickly and quote unquote accurately. And the accuracy is dependent on the interpretation of someone who is perhaps like slightly higher above, higher above them organizationally, but not really like paid a few more dollars to kind of say this aligns with the policy and this doesn't align. So what ends up happening is you are in a situation where you, as a moderator, you need to review content in ways that align with how your quality analyst is kind of assessing the pieces of content you've reviewed, right? So you're not going on your own interpretation of the policy and the implications of the policy you're you're going on on sort of you're, or you're you're trying to figure out what is going to align with with this quality analyst. So there's a few levels there, right? So the first is that the policies themselves are coming from this kind of post-racial perspective and then they're also filtered understandably it's impossible for for human beings to really be objective, right? Through quality analysts who have their own interpretations of of the policies and it's, and it's, this is not to say that there don't exist content moderators with like reactionary views or more conservative views or, or of the right or anything like that, or that all moderators understand that Facebook is putting forward this flawed policy about that encompasses racism. And it's not to say that they all understand that from the left, but it's, it's just to say that it's more than how individual moderators are kind of adjudicating each piece of content. It's really about how the organization is structured and how work is structured such that they have no agency almost, right? And it's not to say they don't try to assert their agency, but it's severely curbed by um, by the company. Right. I guess I'm, I'm wondering what you discovered about how workers both cope and manage with the labour they're performing, but also, I guess, what kinds of resistances are present outside of 
I guess, organised labour, let's say, or formal uh, forms of resistance. How does that factor into how workers actually manage this situation? Yeah. So in the U.S., unfortunately, a lot of the ways that moderators kind of resist is through suing Meta, right? And usually what comes out of that is they will have a settlement that pays out a certain amount to moderators who have worked for Meta within a certain time period, right? So that's happened before. In the U.S., there isn't much union organizing really because there is really a culture of fear within content moderation sites, right? So people are worried about losing their jobs if they organize themselves. In terms of resistance outside of that, there are these everyday forms of resistance. So for example, I talked to a moderator who had described that um, his team as being very tight knit and essentially doing coordinated slowdowns. If one of the members of their team was having a hard time and couldn't work quickly so that the person doesn't get singled out, what they would do is they would all slow down their work, right? So you had these everyday forms of minute resistance against the disciplining force of, of the workplace. But yeah, unfortunately, I, I mean, when I was talking to moderators back, oh no, it's like two years ago now, right? Almost three years ago. They had been talking covertly about potentially unionizing, but there was a lot of fear around that for sure. Well, Ray, we'll have to leave it there. Thanks so much for joining us. If people want to find your work online, you have a website at rayharaza.com. Thanks for coming on. Indeed. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Well, Andy, that is our show. We'll be back next week. See you later. See you then. Join the National Sustainability Festival in 2024 for a huge program of events this February and March. Featuring visiting economist Stephanie Kelton in conversation about her best-selling book, The Deficit Myth, uncovering modern monetary theory and the critical role of deficit spending. Serving as chief economist on the US Senate Budget Committee and as senior economic advisor to Bernie Sanders, Stephanie is flipping our understanding of the national debt and the nature of money upside down. For the full festival program and to book online, go to sustainabilityfestival.au. The National Sustainability Festival is a 3CR supporter. Celebrate all that unites us and host a Feast for Freedom this year. Cook delicious global recipes gifted by refugees and come together with your friends, family and community while raising vital funds for the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre. Register now at feastforfreedom.org.au. The Asylum Seeker Resource Centre is a 3CR supporter.